A reading from 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and not asked for yourself of long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself an understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Romans, chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. 
Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. He then told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like um, heaven, leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown out into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, he drew it to the shore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us to gather together in your name. And Lord, we are so thankful that Jesus, you promised that when we gather in your name that you are here with us. And we just want to acknowledge your presence. Thank you for being here. We proclaim that you are Lord of this church and of all the church. And so give us open hearts to receive all that you want to teach us, we ask. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. I'm uh, currently uh, reading a um, book uh, with the uh, um, interesting name, Love, Hope, and Carnage. Um, it's by, um, or it's, a, it's a sort of an extended conversation interview uh, between a, a journalist named Sean O'Hagan um, and the singer Nick Cave. Um, now, I should say up front, I'm not very familiar with Nick Cave or his music, so this is not an endorsement of it. Don't go listen. I hear it's actually, much of his music is quite um, dark. Uh, but the book was actually recommended to me by someone that just said it was just a very interesting exploration of faith and issues around faith and around artistry. Again, Nick Cave singer, songwriter, um, and kind of a, a Christ-haunted person who more recently in his life, partly because of, um, sadly, the, the tragic death of one of his children, has really been on a spiritual journey and um, has become much more explicit about his seeking out um, the Lord. And so it's a, a fascinating conversation. The journalist who's talking with him is a friend, but clearly is a very different place spiritually. But the journalist also um, uh, suffered an incredible tragedy and a loss of a sibling. And so they think of through those things together. Um, one point in the conversation, I'm still pretty early um, in the book, um, but Nick Cave uh, says this about the issue of doubt. They're talking about doubt and faith. And he says, the rigid and self-righteous certainty of some religious people, and then he adds, and some atheists for that matter, is something I find disagreeable. The hubris of it, the sanctimoniousness, it leaves me cold. The more overtly unshakable someone's beliefs are, the more diminished they seem to become because they have stopped questioning. And the not questioning can sometimes be accompanied by a moral superiority. So he says that about doubt and about his, or about certainty and doubt, 
But then just a few lines later in this conversation in the book, he says this. He says, I think of late I've become increasingly impatient with my own skepticism. It feels obtuse and counterproductive. Something, something simply standing in the way of a better lived life. I feel it would be good for me to get beyond it. I think I would be happier if I stopped window shopping and just went in the door. Right, so you hear in that both this unease with certainty, right? And this feeling actually that the more certain we become, and especially in regards to faith, perhaps in some ways we, we lose something. And yet at the same time, very interesting, and again, I appreciate his honesty, he's saying, but I actually want more certainty. There's actually a big part of me that wants to move beyond skepticism. And I, I love that image and go beyond sort of window shopping in regard to faith and specifically faith in Christ and go in, right? And, and come into the, the store. And I think this tension is probably a tension many of us um, probably feel, maybe in our own faith, or we see that in other lives, right? There's something that seems, you know, good about doubt um, in some ways, right? It, you know, again, we get nervous about people, maybe there's too certain of things, and yet we want more certainty. We want to be certain, especially in our relationship with the Lord, right? Because in relationships of love, we want there to be certainty. We don't want there to be doubt. I think actually there's sort of a dynamic like that that we see in our Romans reading today. In the sense of, clearly we see um, an emphasis, an underlying, you know, Paul's teaching here, and the Holy Spirit's teaching through Paul, is that we are weak, right? Um, that we are frail. We need help. And so I don't think you can read the book of Romans, and certainly this section of Romans, and say in any way that people should live with pride, or hubris, or moral superiority, what we get again and again is we should not be certain of ourselves. We actually should be aware of how sort of fleeting and weak we are. And yet it's actually our weakness and our lack of certainty that leads us to the Lord. And he meets us in our weakness. We actually, as we are aware of our weakness, we find his strength. So I want to explore this dynamic, how actually being aware of our weakness, again, moving from moral superiority, moving out of a place of hubris or sanctimoniousness, a great uh, word that Nick Caves used there, actually leads us to the Lord, leads us to that place of finding more certainty in him as, again, we acknowledge our own weakness. So let's see just some of the ways actually we see our weakness um, in this passage, and we see how the Lord meets us uh, with his strength. And first, it speaks of our weakness in prayer, right? I mean, it's very clear, right? Explicit. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And so this is building on in the passage before this, and you heard that preached on uh, last week, if you were here, it's talking about the hope, um, or Paul's been speaking about, the scriptures have been speaking about the hope that the Spirit gives us. The Spirit gives us a taste, the, the first fruits of the fullness of salvation that is to come. And so we have a hope that the Spirit gives us, and now he's saying, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. We're speaking of the Holy Spirit here, right? The third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, in one sense, um, we can say, well, we do know what to pray for, right? I mean, we have all sorts of things uh, to pray for. I'm sure all of us have a long list of things we're praying for, and we know in many ways how to pray, Right? I mean, Jesus taught the disciples when they say, how do we pray? He taught them the Lord's Prayer, right? Which is something, of course, we can recite, but also gives us really a framework um, for prayers. We pray the Lord's Prayer as we reflect on the Lord's Prayer. It shows us all sorts of ways how to pray. But we also, right, probably all have experienced at times, like, I, I just, I don't even know how to pray. 
right? I mean, I know what I'm praying for. I know I can thank the Lord. I know I can bring intercessions. I know I can confess him my sins. But anyways, I don't know. Is it making any difference when I'm praying? Am I praying in line with his desires and with his will? Right? When I pray in Jesus' name, am I truly submitting ourselves, myself to Jesus? You know, maybe you've experienced this. You're praying for a job. Like, Lord, give me this job. And then you think, well, I don't know. Maybe God has a better job for me. Should I be asking for this job? Maybe I, you know, it's better that I don't have a job for a while. And God has something to teach me in that. And so we feel this dynamic. How do I pray? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? And we're getting the encouragement here. Look, when we don't know how to pray, when perhaps we feel overwhelmed by the mystery of prayer, and there's certainly a mystery in prayer, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit of God, God the Spirit, is actually interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Or we may not be able to articulate how the Spirit is praying for us, but He is praying for us. He is groaning for us. Right? You feel that urgency, that sense of partnership that the Spirit has with us. Right? And so the Spirit is interceding for us. And as we get to the end of the passage, we hear Jesus is interceding for us, right? The very final verse of, you know, the, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so Spirit's interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. They know the will of the Father. When we feel like, I don't know how to pray, Lord, right? I'm so overwhelmed. I'm, I'm not sure how to pray. Wow, there's the, the Spirit and the Son are praying for us and interceding for us. And they know how to pray. And not only that, but what does it say in verse 27? And he who searches hearts know what is the mind of the Spirit. Who's the he there? What's God the Father, right? When we read it, it can be a little confusing. Like, who's the he? Well, that's God the Father whom the Spirit is interceding to. And um, again, who um, Jesus is interceding to. God the Father knows our hearts. He knows us. He knows what we most need. And he is hearing the intercessions of the Son and of the Spirit. And so you have this beautiful sort of interaction. Again, there's mystery here, right? But there's the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? One God, three persons. And we see this in this prayer and, and in this uh, ministry of prayer that's happening here. Now, maybe we read this and we say, well, that's really beautiful, but like, why am I praying? I mean, if the Spirit's praying and Jesus is praying and the Father's hearing it who knows our hearts, uh, should I just get out of the way? <laughs> should I be kind of like, all right, I'll, I'll get out of here, right? Because you guys seem to have this taken care of. But of course, that's not the message, right? Paul's not saying, hey, don't even worry about it. He's saying, you're invited. As a matter of fact, you're not only invited, you're actually commanded to join into this prayer, right? Yeah, I mean, our, our um, uh, opening Colic, which um, Father um, Joshua uh, uh, just uh, prayed for us, right? We, we are always, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray, right? The Lord is ready to hear our prayers. He wants us to pray. Matter of fact, again, he's, he's um, directing, right? He's welcoming the prayers of the, the Spirit interceding for us and the Son interceding for us, and we're invited to be part of that. And so don't hear this and think, ooh, you know, like, this is too much for me. I actually hear this and think, but I may not understand this. I may not be able to fully grasp this, but I'm called to be a part of it. I'm called when I pray to enter into uh, this ministry of prayer and to be a part of it. And so, yeah, maybe there are times where I get glimpses of how to pray, and I get a taste of how to pray, and I feel inspired in my prayers, and I feel very direct in my prayers. Maybe there are times where I see amazing answers to prayer, where I'm like, wow, God really directed me to pray that way, and I can see how he's responding to that. And maybe there are other times where you just feel like, I don't know, I'm just talking to myself. But no matter the case, we can have assurance. God wants us to pray, invites us to pray, and actually we are praying in partnership with him. That's a beautiful right, relationship that we're called into. 
And so, yes, acknowledge your weakness, right? I, I'm weak. I don't know how to pray. I don't even understand how prayer works. And yet, God meets me there and invites me to be a part of it and in ways that I can't see. My prayers are making a difference, right, in my own life and building me up, but also in blessing others and being a part of God's work in the world. So he meets us in our weakness in prayer. He meets us in our weakness in the face of difficulties, in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, right? We see our weakness there. Not only our weakness in just having to suffer, but I think for many of us, our weakness in the struggles um, that that suffering causes, and the struggles in so many ways, but especially in our spiritual life, right? In our faith, right? When we face trials, our faith is shaken, and God meets us in that. So we have, right? Uh, famous, right? Romans 8, 28. I'm sure familiar to many of us and so important. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are calling, called according to his purpose, right? In many ways, it's like, yeah, if the Spirit and the Son are interceding for us, and God who knows our hearts is receiving those intercessions, then in some sense we could say that makes sense, and then all things are ultimately working together for good, right? But the fact of the matter is that's often hard to believe, right? It's hard um, to trust um, that that is truly the case. Now, Paul doesn't specifically in this passage, right, in these verses that we have before us, speak to suffering. But keep in mind, in many ways, um, Romans 8, um, 18 is sort of, you know, the beginning of this whole um, argument um, where Paul says, right, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Right? And so he's already brought up suffering, right? And the sufferings of this present time. He's acknowledging, I know many of you are facing suffering. If you're not now, you will, right? That's part of life. And he's saying, but I know God works all things together for good, right? The fact of the matter is, right, when things are going well, and when we feel, you know, a lot of peace about our circumstances, when we're looking around and seeing blessings, right, everywhere, we're usually not seeing, saying, how is God working this together for good, right? We're just like, oh, man, God's, God's at work, right? We're celebrating that. It's in the times of suffering, it's in the times of trials, it's in the times of absence that we say, how is this possibly any good? And to be clear, right, and we got to be really clear on this. I think sometimes this verse is misunderstood. It is not saying it is all good, right? I, I know that's a, a fun thing to say. All good, it's all good, right? Um, that's not the message. This is not denying the reality of sin and suffering and evil, right? Again, it's already, um, Paul's already acknowledged, and it's acknowledged all over Scripture, right? We suffer, right? And suffer's being, suffering's part of being in a fallen world, in a place where evil is at work, in a world where there's a spiritual battle happening. And so, so Paul's not saying it's all good, you know? And actually, if you pretend it's not all good, then you have a lack of faith, right? He's saying in our weakness, right, the Lord meets us and assures us he is working for good in the midst of actually what are often painful and hard circumstances. And sometimes, right, we get glimpses of this. Often we get glimpses, thankfully, where we can see, maybe at the time, maybe later we can see, oh, I can see God's working in this, right? I can, I can see the way God is bringing redemption through um, this suffering, right? And one of the ways, actually, we know that he brings redemption. One of the ways he works actually comes up in the next verse, right, in that he's making us more like Jesus. He's conforming us to the image of his son. And sadly, um, I mean, I shouldn't say sadly, I mean, beautifully, but it's often hard one of the ways we're conformed more and more to the image of his son is often through suffering and through difficulties. Jesus was a person familiar with suffering, right? We know that. And so the Lord works in that and forms us. And oftentimes we can see that, even in the midst, or maybe later we can look back and say, I see how God worked in that to actually strengthen my dependence on him, 
to actually make me more like Jesus, to grow me as a servant. Right? But let's be honest, sometimes we can't see that. And sometimes, right, we may look back on painful circumstances years later and still say, I have no idea how anything good came from that. All I see is a mess, right? I mean, I'm sure all of us have things like that. And yet we're being reminded, we're being encouraged. Remember, God is ultimately working good from all things. Again, those all things aren't good. Many of them are, are suffer, are involve suffering and pain and sinfulness, but God is redeeming. God is working through those things. And again, it takes faith, right? He meets us in our weakness. He assures us, right? I'm working. I have a perspective beyond what you can. And right, let's note there's some sort of parentheses around that that are really important, right? He begins with, for those who love God, right? And that's not saying, hey, unless you really love God, he's not working all things for good. But it is saying there's a response to God's faithfulness that we're called to, right? We see that um, throughout the scriptures, right? There's a response of love to his love, right? His love comes first. His love is poured out upon us. But then we are called to respond to his love. Actually, when we experience his love, when we experience who the Lord is, we can't help but respond with love. It's interesting, actually, when you uh, read Paul's um, letters, uh, he talks about us loving God very few times. Now, again, it's there, and this is one of the places, but it's actually not a strong emphasis for him. But if you look at all the times he talks about God's love for us, it's overwhelming, actually, how much um, that is. Um, again, throughout the New Testament, in particular in Paul's letters. Again, first and foremost, God loves us, but again, how can you experience that love and not respond uh, with love? And so, yes, it's for those who love God, but it's for those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so there's, yes, our role, right, to respond in love to the Lord and to receive his love and to answer, right, that love, right? To respond to the commandment of um, Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, and soul. But we are the ones who are called according to his purpose, right? That's a response to his calling. And he has called us. According to his purpose, he has things that he's working out. So there's the redemption that the Lord brings. Again, in our weakness, we can feel overwhelmed. We can think, I have no idea what's going on. And the Lord meets us and says, I am working this for good, ultimately, and to trust and to receive that. And then finally, we see in our um, weakness, our weakness of being unable to save ourselves, God meets us in that. I know this has been a theme of um, Romans, and maybe you feel like, I, I've heard that before. Yes, we keep saying it, and I keep saying it over and over again, but it's so important. It's Christianity 101, right? We cannot save ourselves. But I've been struck in the study of the book of Romans how much the Lord wants to keep showing us that. Right? I mentioned that quote at the beginning, right, where you know, Nick Cave was talking about, I see this pride, I see this sanctimoniousness, this moral superiority. Right? Of all people, Christians should be the least prideful Right? Because at the heart of our beliefs is we can't save ourselves. We're actually weak. We need a Savior. And yes, the Savior calls us to, to live morally and to obey him and calls us to be lights in this world. Right? But all of that grows out of a deep humility of we need his help. And just note here, again, how the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is wanting us to see this is all the Lord has done for you. Look what you have received from him. Look at sort of the multitude of ways that he has saved you, right? I mean, he, his salvation involves um, so much. And so we have a verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be um, conformed to the image of his son. Okay, I'm just going to stop here and just briefly say 
This is a verse theologians love to argue about. And some of you are like, woohoo, let's get into arguments that theologians have. I'm going to be really quick um, on this. Um, but that verb or that word foreknew is a great debated word. What does that mean that God, whom God foreknew, he predestined? And just to keep it really simple, some would say that word foreknew, what that means is he knew those who would put their faith in him, those who would respond to his love. Right? And others would say, no, foreknowledge of God means actually he is choosing them to put their faith in him. Okay, you're, you're kind of getting this a little bit, right? We're getting into the mysteries of salvation. But again, that's actually a word. That's a beautiful word. But again, people understand in different ways. Right? For God to know someone is basically to call them into relationship with himself, some would say. So not getting into those arguments um, other than mentioning that. I will say, again, in scripture, we see so clearly Right? Our faith and our response to the Lord in faith is so important. And yet alongside that, we see so clearly God's initiation towards us and God's deep love for us. And I think the emphasis here, right, without saying, okay, we got to, you know, get, you know, totally figure this out. The emphasis here, I believe, that the Lord is bringing us through Paul is just look how much the Lord has done for you. Right? We can feel again, you know, I'm so weak. How, how can it be that the Lord's really worked in my life, right? When, when I'm so aware of my own sinfulness, my own weakness, my own doubts. And he's wanting to make it clear. Look at all the Lord has done for you. He foreknew you. He's always known you. Before you were born, he knew you. He has always loved you, right? And he has predestined you, right? Again, big theological word, but just hearing that you belong to him. And he has made sure that you belong to him. And he has called you, right? He has called you to be part of his mission to the world. He has given you a purpose. He has given you a meaning in life. And he has justified you. He has forgiven you your sins, right? There's not this, you know, burden on you. He has lifted off that burden and has totally and completely forgiven you and brought you in the right relationship with you. And he has glorified you. And maybe here you're saying, wait a second. He has glorified me? First of all, isn't God supposed to be the one who gets, gets the glory? Yes, um, he does. And we will be singing that. God gets the ultimate glory, right? God gets the honor that only he deserves. But amazingly, in God's mercy, he has glorified us. He has honored us. He celebrates us. And yes, there's an ultimate glory we're working forward to. A quote I just read speaks of that, right? We're longing for this future glory but I think it's significant that that's in the present tense. You've actually been glorified right now, right? You're, you're, you're starting to get that glory of the fullness of which is still to come. And that God celebrates you right now. God shines his light upon you and shines his light through you at this time. And again, we long for future glory. We long for that glory when we are forever with Christ, right? For all eternity. But he's with us now. And he's glorifying us now. And again, it's, it's, I just am so struck right, in this final section. You know, we can say Paul is so willing to encourage the Romans, right? Just see what God has done for you. But let's be really clear. This isn't just Paul encouraging the Roman church or Paul encouraging us. This is the word of the Lord. Right? This is God speaking through his servant Paul, saying, hear what the Lord has done for you, right? If God's for you, who can be against you? We may say, well, a lot of people can be against us. Yes, that's right, actually. <laughs> there is a lot. But they're not God. Right? God's for you, right? And so, yeah, maybe you have lots of enemies. Maybe you feel like the whole world's against you. But God's for you, the one who created the world. Right? He gave up his only son. If you doubt, is he really for me? He gave up his only son. And the son willingly came. 
to die for us. And the Father and the Son poured out the Spirit, the very presence, the very person of God upon us that we can receive the Spirit. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, right? Who who can condemn you? No one can condemn you. There is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus our Lord. He died, he rose again, and he is interceding for us. So again, let's appreciate the encouragement we have in there. And again, my prayer, my hope is that you hear, this is the Lord speaking, wanting you to know, yes, know your weakness. Be humble, right? And know a right and good humility. And may that lead to a greater certainty in the faithfulness of our God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just thankful uh, for the beauty of your word. And... um, of course, there's some passages in Scripture that may be hard and may be challenging for us, and yet you speak through them. And we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we can receive. Lord, I pray for each person here um, today that they would truly be able to hear the truth that if you are for them, right, then um, it doesn't matter who's against them, that they would hear that, you, uh, that they um, belong to you. And then faith, there is so much um, to receive um, from you. Lord, we thank you um, that you meet us in our doubts and in our doubt and our questioning that in no way disqualifies us, Lord, but actually puts us in that place of need and weakness where we can receive um, even more from you. And so I pray for that, Lord. I pray that for each one of us, you would grow us um, in prayer, knowing that you intercede and pray for us. And we offer um, all these prayers to you, Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.